0: Welcome to episode 71 in this new year of our Lord, 2020. And I could only think of starting this new season of Kyperion Podcast with my friend Dustin Messer. Dustin, welcome back and happy new year to you, my brother.
1: Happy new year to you,
0: I haven't talked to you all year. I know, it's the ninth day of Christmas and here we are again chatting about a wonderful Topics. It's my hope to have many guests throughout the year. It is always a special privilege to have my friend Dustin Mester. So, uh, welcome back into this episode, Dustin. I want to talk about an important issue for Christians all over the world, which is the issue of Catholicism. And we'll define that shortly. But I also want to point our listeners to uh, Dustin's articles, which you can find on his Facebook page. But they are published on a regular basis, they're at Breakpoint and we'll put those links for our listeners uh, so you can read and um, uh, be exposed to some of Dustin's writings outside of Kyperion. Really a, a very prolific author. And I, I always enjoy talking to people who are fruitful in their writing labors and who are able to manage pastoral work, uh, being a husband, a teacher, and also find time to write on the side. So Dustin, uh, thanks for your labor. So Catholicism, you had a post There uh, on your Facebook page, which I encourage you all to send Dustin immediately a friend request. If you haven't reached that magic number of 5,000, Dustin, I urge you to accept all the hundreds of friend requests that are coming your way after this episode here. But you had a post on December the 29th, and it really caught my attention. And the post on Facebook was, any theory of Catholicity articulated by one who's never faithfully served the church with a style of music they don't like. Is suspect. Let me begin by just sharing a little bit of my my little um, biography in this regard, thus, if you will. In somewhere between the early two thousands, I was an intern at a PCA church, and it was my task to lead the congregation. I was essentially functioning as a an intern pastor that had to prepare not only the worship every Sunday, but the music. The pastor had just resigned. So there I was, a seminarian, interning a congregation where I had to do virtually everything. But the task I least enjoyed was the task of leading worship with my guitar, which they essentially made it a part of my contract that if they were to pay me, I had to lead the worship with my guitar. And I didn't enjoy that because I was playing music that I didn't like, With rhythms that I didn't appreciate, with lyrics that I rarely treasured, and in a style that was very foreign to not only what I had been trained, but also foreign to my personality. Now, it's one thing to sit down with a bunch of friends on New Year's Eve and play some Leonard Cohen or Paul McCartney. It's a whole other thing to stand in front of a congregation on the Lord's Day and play music that you don't appreciate and you actually have to lead it. And so I did that for three years. It was quite an experience. But one lesson it taught me very early on, and it was powerfully impressed in my heart when I left, was that those years, they taught me a lot of patience. Patience in in doing something that I wasn't particularly inclined to do, but I needed to be intentional about it if I'm going to present music that honors God in front of a congregation, and so patience was kind of my lesson anyway, talk a little bit about the uh, the origin of that um, of that quote and how it plays its role in the Catholicity of the church yeah you know I started thinking about
1: <clears throat> this because uh, the church I currently serve at All Saints Dallas uh, has really wonderful music Our worship pastor. Is a guy named Ryan Flanagan. And if you or anybody else uh, doesn't buy, he has a, a bunch of albums called Liturgical Folk, uh, which is just great liturgical music. Um, and and he's done just, just a phenomenal worship pastor. And so I wrote that on Sunday because I was thinking as I was listening to that, how incredibly blessed I was to go to this church and to listen to this music and serve in this church that has really, really, really high quality music, you know, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, it was just very technically good. In addition to all the theological depth and so forth, it was just technically performed very well. And uh, it made me think, you know, how easy it would be if this was the only sort of church environment I had ever had to to sort of view this as normative and then go to a, a, some other church, right. That doesn't have as, 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 technically good music. Um, and, and just think, well, this isn't for me, but my biography is similar, uh, to yours. I think it's probably okay to, to tell story stories. It's been so many years uh, since, but I served at a church in Kentucky, uh, a first Baptist church, kind of a medium to, to large size, first Baptist church that was, you know, very culturally, um, different than what I was used to and and just, you know, a different place. And there were a lot of sort of cultural um things that went along with being sort of a big steeple, First Baptist church. That me as someone who at that point, you know, I had married a Presbyterian, but I wasn't myself Baptist, but I had more reformed leanings and so forth. Uh Uh I was just kind of uncomfortable with some of the 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 idiosyncrasies of big big steeple First Baptist Church. Anyways, the pastor there—a very, very um, faithful, godly man. Uh, we, he and I came at about the same time to the church. Uh, one day, the church had a habit of posting really cheesy, like little sayings on the sign, so that
0: it, right, right, it was, right. We see those a lot here in the south. Yeah,
1: yeah. As you drove by, you know, it would uh, it would say something kind of cheesy. Anyways, uh, whenever the pastor who was there and myself came, one of the first things I wanted to do was stop having, you know, these cheesy little little things because I thought if anything, they're pushing people away. And so uh, we put the a a verse that the pastor would be preaching on the following Sunday out there, Uh, and that was like on a Wednesday. Well, on Thursday morning, we drive up, and one of the sort of old cornerstone people in the church was out there, and he was taking down the passage, you know, John 2, 4, whatever it was, and he was putting up instead this, you know, kind of hokey quote that had some sort of pun in it that I can't remember. Anyways, I was sitting in the pastor's office, and I saw him do that, and I told the pastor, you know, he knows that that was just changed. He knows that we think that's hokey, you know. Let, I'm going to go tell him, no, we're, we're leaving that. And I'll never forget this very faithful, wise pastor stopped me. And he said, Dustin, you and I as pastors aren't after a sign or after people's hearts. And it was a huge, mm. a, a humbling moment for me because what I realized was it was easy for me to feel more comfortable and more successful at a church once I had changed all of sort of the accoutrements, or I had changed, you know, I had shined the outside of the cup. But what that pastor was saying is, do you not care more about what's inside the cup? Such that if when we cut the the people in our church, if they're not bleeding Bible, what good does it do just to have a Bible verse on a sign? And likewise, it strikes me that there's absolutely nothing wrong with having Great music. (laughs) It's it's important. It's really good to have great music. And I'm not, you know, someone in that post that said, Well, are you an aesthetic relativist? You know, that just says it doesn't Mm. matter. Well, to the contrary, it does matter. And yet we are called to have the inside of the cup match the outside of the cup. You know, clean the inside Mm. of the cup first and then the outside of the cup. And so it just strikes me that any theory you and I have about Catholicity and the unity of the church must be born out of, you know, the really tough labor of pastoral work in all its idiosync- idiosyncrasies and serving with people who uh, have
0: different sort of cultural tastes than you and I. Well said, and I, uh, I really, really appreciated that story, and I think it um, hits home at many levels. And over the years, I've had the privilege of talking to hundreds of pastors, but also young pastoral candidates who are really interested in implementing certain visions that they have read and they want to implement these things from the outset without a moment's thought to how can how will this affect the congregation how will this increase unity in the body yeah how will these changes lead to a greater catholicity which essentially the word catholic means a wholeness or a universality. How will this lead to the kind of community where people love one another? How will a harsh change—and you know this as well as I do—that in a lot of congregations there are certain established dogmas of music and you know traditions that you can't simply change overnight. Um, and I think that's important to communicate to pastoral candidates, or young pastors beginning the ministry now, that changes you make have to be deeply embedded in the the nature of your people's hearts. How do we change a culture? Uh, In other words, how do we implement something with the intention of changing a culture rather than implementing something for the sake of destroying people's hearts and their affections? And that's something really to ponder.
1: Yeah, it it really is, and in doing that, you know, you can only do that at the most local level, at the most individual level, at particular churches, right? And it strikes me—I think most people, when they think of um, when they think of Catholicity or ecumenism or, or whatever it is—I think what they immediately think of is is sort of the very worst fringes of the ecumenical movement of say the these mm-hmm. '70s. And there you have the almost the exact opposite of what you're describing, which is, you know, it sort of started with the theological mm-hmm. and then tried to sort of ram it down to the level of shepherding and pastoral. I mean, you know, you don't have to to buy into to Episcopal categories, but just for the sake of illustration, it's almost as if Catholicity started at the bishop level and then tried mm-hmm. to get pushed to the priest level and the di- diaconate. Whereas I think what the division you're describing is you come in sensitive to the needs of the people, serving the people, caring for the people's hearts, and so forth. And then you can have a real wholeness and a Catholicity at the diaconate level at an individual church, a local church. But then you could Im- imagine expanding that to the parish level. Where, you know, you're not going to the Eastern Orthodox or the Methodist or the Baptist or whatever and asking them, let's all get our theology figured out. And then once we have that theology figured out, let's go paint, you know, Mrs. Gardner's house. Instead, what you're saying is you're saying, I'm starting at the diaconate level. In other words, me and the Greek Orthodox and the Methodist and the Baptist can all go together, paint Miss Gardner's house, um, caring for the parish, caring for The community at that sort of service level. And then it can rise up, Lord willing, as we're doing sort of the hard work of, you know, theological study and biblical exegesis and so forth. It can rise up to that shepherding level from the service diaconate level up to the shepherding level. So in the episcopal form, that would be from the diaconate to the priesthood. And then, Lord willing, you get to, you know, the bishop form or, you know, just the larger sort of theological. Form where I think it's perfectly appropriate to to pray for, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, say to repent of the various uh, theological blunders that uh, that Martin Luther pointed out, that you and I would uh, would stand on the side of him for, and actually hope for real theological unity. Nevertheless, that theological unity, it seems to me, doesn't come; uh, isn't the starting point. Is the end point such that, you know, you and I don't have to wait for some decree to come from, uh, you know, from Vatican City or or Constantinople or wherever. Uh, we actually can be out in the community showing signs of Catholicity. A question I would have for you as someone who's pastored in, you know, the same town for, for a long time is... Have there been any good examples you've seen of Catholicity in Pensacola, Florida? Uh, maybe some some bad examples? I don't know. How have you seen Pensacola become more or less, uh, the faith community in Pensacola become more or less whole uh, in your tenure?
0: Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think one area where Catholicity is very much embraced, especially the evangelical Catholic communities is in the area of uh, pursuing pro-life agenda. And uh, on Friday mornings, my associate pastor who's a very faithful man in this area, gathers with Catholics and with fundamentalist Baptists. I mean, you can't imagine such a unity, but there's a common vision there we're defending together. That's been probably an example where we've seen the most peaceful Catholicity, where in many ways... We put aside our Calvinism. We put aside our Marian doctrines, and we come together and rejoice and uh, peacefully pray and encourage women to do what God demands of them. That's one area. The other area where we we'll probably have it has not been successful, I think, is and this is an interesting observation altogether. But the the other area where there's been very little success has been in Joining forces with people who are probably 95% on the same page. It is amazing that as we seek Catholicity, which is a very explicit principle from Jesus in the Gospel of St. John, those who have the most in common tend to find greater reasons for division. And we both of us have been uh, influenced by John Frame's article, uh, Machen's Warrior Children, as, just as a prime example of this here. But that's an area where I would like to see more unity. And in the sense of, I want to make just an observation on your point on the, the emphasis on localism. And that is that when we come to see people visit our church, if we jump in with our theological distinctives, I think we're missing a great opportunity to bring people along into our vision. And so over the years, I've had many conversations with our former Sunday school teacher, a uh, man by the name of Jim Jordan, over what are the the primary things that a church ought to expose to those who are visiting. And for those of us from liturgical traditions, if we're going to do liturgy, we need to do it really well. Hmm. Because for people of us who live in the South, it is an incredibly uh, frightening picture sometimes for people coming in from the outside. So if we're going to do it, we got to do it really well. But beyond that, we need to present a a vision of what Chesterton called a, a vision of joy to those who are visiting so that our, our liturgy combined combined with the joy presents an image that's at first tolerable and later on delightful for those who are a part of this yeah. a part of this tradition. And so I think that, that chronology that you presented beginning with a diaconal version how can I serve you? How can I greet you with a smile? How can I say the Lord be with you? These introductory remarks eventually leads to a kind of culture where theological or let's say liturgical changes can be a lot more doable because a congregation has already experienced the kind of friendliness and communal peace that allows for bigger changes to take place. If you do the opposite, if you flip that
1: yeah.
0: that around and you're looking for great damage in the church, division, schisms, um, and, and even the people who are not divisive will also feel fairly hurt by it. And the last thing you want yeah. is to have those changes that you desired implemented so fast that the people to whom you're ministering are unappreciative and in some ways intimidated by the things that have been presented. That's exactly right. I'll
1: give you a story just to illustrate your point about, you know, so emphasizing the distinctives. There's a church here in the Dallas area, a Baptist church that recently discovered sort of the doctrines of grace and and have become uh, quite Calvinistic as a result. Before the holidays this past year, I was talking to a student there who uh, is interested in dating a girl who's Mormon. Well, So he was asking me, you know, what do Mormons believe and so forth. And so I started getting into, you know, their view of of who Jesus is and and how that uh, affects uh, their view or lack thereof of the Trinity. Anyway, he made this interesting comment to me that, that really highlights what you just said, which was, yeah, that's true, all that stuff about the Trinity. He said, but when I talked to her about, you know, the sovereignty of God, he said it would not be like me dating an Arminian. And I thought that is such a perfect example where if you so focus and major on and highlight your distinctives, it's not that it raises, you know, those distinctives up. It's actually that it brings down Mm. the core of the faith, such that, you know, a young man in that church now views the Trinity as sort of negotiable, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, particular redemption as as ultimate. And so I think, you know, and as you say, emphasizing in your liturgy the main things are the main things, it it's not to to say that the distinctives are unimportant, but it's to sort of reorient everyone in the community such that our kids don't think, you know, Methodists are
0: non-believers and Mormons are, right? Right. Very good. Yeah, that's excellent. Okay, so we had a couple more minutes here. Let's let's delve uh, some practicalities here. Let's give maybe one or two pieces of advice to a new pastor who is, he's young, he's fresh, he's got an MDiv certificate hanging on his wall, his first year of his pastorate, and he has some mighty Uh, utopian ideas about how to implement certain liturgical changes, let's say in the standard evangelical church in America, where liturgy is not very common. What kind of advice would you give that young pastor as he begins his labors?
1: Well, so the the church I mentioned in Kentucky really did go through a pretty monumental uh, reform in the sense that, you know, It was was called back to things it had confessed in the past. It grew um, in size a lot and so forth. And so that was a a situation where, you know, I was just uh, the youth minister, but I was able to learn from a really wise pastor. So I'll just say a couple of things that he did, one of which was he would always quote Mark Dever's line about, you know, never you always overestimate what you can do in a year and you always underestimate what you can do in five. One is have a little bit of a longer term view of change. That is mm. be okay with, with incremental change That's and, excellent. you know, read, yeah, read some Edmund Burt yeah, <laughs> there <you> to- go. <laughs> or Hayek or somebody to give you sort of a conservative sensibility of, of change. And, and the second thing, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts on it is I would always ground change as I'm defending it just from a rhetorical standpoint in the Bible and not in theologians. In other words, I wouldn't mm. stand up, and say, you know, I want to do this because, you know, Polycarp says or whatever, I would stand up and I would say, you know, and it would be great if you're naturally pe- preaching through a passage and you say, you know, here's sort of the natural application of that passage. Because it strikes me that, you know, as soon as you appeal to some authority outside of scripture, you know, your congregation can, uh, not without just cause, sort of write off what you're going to say a little bit. Whereas if you say, you know, here's where I'm coming from, from Scripture, you can have an honest dialogue and honest debate. So those would be my two things, incremental change and grounding your reasoning in Scripture. Do you have any, uh, as we close
0: here, uh, thoughts on on what you'd say to that young pastor? Dustin, that's excellent. Uh, a couple of things. I've had this experience many times. I wrote an article for Theopolis entitled, How to implement the Nicene Creed or evangelical church. And so, um, borrowing from, from myself here, but I think that one of the first things to keep in mind is, I I think everything you said is, is just spot on. I would add if you have a smaller congregation, which sometimes is the case, spend time with the men of your church individually for coffee, beginning these conversations at a very, very private level, begin, have these conversations, engage their reactions, but Have a long-term view of these things here. I've been here for 11 years, and I'm at a position now where a lot of the changes that have been made over the years were worked very carefully in pastoral visits with individuals in the church, with sessions, with diaconates. And so begin to meet these men, especially the men who have a more kind of a, a, a presence in the life of the church. Begin to talk to them, and like like you said, ground them in biblical rationale. It's very rare to find somebody in evangelical congregations, any congregation, who is steeped in the writings of uh, you know patristic fathers. They're going to be a lot more concerned about what does the authority of the Bible say on these issues. the The second uh, suggestion that come that comes to mind is to love your congregation well. Uh, it's one of those things when, when when pastors love the children of people, if if parents see that pastors care about their children, ask them questions, there is already an an invitational environment that grows out of that. And same way in congregational life, if these people see you in the hospital when their sons have concussions, when their grandparents are dying, these people are going to be a lot more open. Uh, to, to change it. So if a young pastor at, you know, 27, 28, starting there, your first task is to love your people so well that three, four years down the road, when you say, let's apply, let's begin to recite the Nicene Creed on Sunday morning, when you open up that box, they're going to say, that's a little bit odd, but you have loved those so well that we're willing to give you an ear. And I think that's, um, I think that's a, that's a, another way of beginning this conversation. But again, your point is very uh, pertinent here. And that is that every pastor needs to have a long-term strategy. They need to believe that their vision is going to be a vision that they themselves will be a part of 10 years down the road. I know circumstances change, but the pastor who is truly local will not shove changes in people's throats. He will work through these changes in the long-term process and loving the people will open up wonderful doors. Very well said. Dustin, episode 71 in the history books. Thanks for joining us, my friend, and the Lord be with you. It is always a high honor to talk
1: with you, Yuri, and follow your example of Catholicity, which you've set there in Pensacola for a long time, so I
0: appreciate you talking to me. My pleasure, brother. Lord bless you. Bye-bye.